Good afternoon. Welcome to this week's edition of Navarra FM. I'm Aaron Bastani at Aaron Bastani on Twitter. And is, as so often the case, I'm joined by James Butler at Pierce Penalist. Hi, James. Hi. As usual, this show will be available online shortly after this broadcast ends. That will be at www.navarramedia.com, where you'll also be able to find nearly the entire Navarra FM back catalogue, as well as all Navarra TV content, both documentaries and hashtag IMO Bastani. Other than that, check out the BuzzFeed of the left, wire.navaramedia.com, and our array of social media assets. We're on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Vine, all under Navarra Media. Thanks for listening. Joining James and I in the show this week is Whale Kasim at Whale Q. Hi, Whale. Hello, uh, Whale. <laughs> I don't know if Whale's mic for us. We're on brand this week in so much as somebody's late. Normally it's me, but uh, today it's Whale. I like Whale just... Uh, just get in. Okay. Um, how you doing? Were you okay? Yeah, I'm good. Thank Bit you. Flustered. Thanks for having me on the show. My, my pleasure. Well, I was kind enough to write something for Navarra Wire ahead of Wednesday's Ferguson Solidarity Protest in London. That's called On Ferguson, Black Lives and Solidarity, an open letter. Um, you can check that out. It's on Um I guess we're going to start, James. You're going to play a little bit of uh, media from Ferguson to provide a bit of context about the topic of today's discussion, Mike Brown, Ferguson, militarised policing and why these protests are echoing around the world. So, yeah, that's yeah. just... betrayed them we will not betray them though justice seems far away may they know that we are close to them and that we are with them and that they might know that they have already won that they are the inspiration of this nation and we say now to the police we have already won and you are on the wrong he side he to keep running because he feared for me too so as he was running the officer uh, was trying to get out of the car and once he got out the car he uh he pursued my friend, but his, his weapon was drawn. Now, he didn't see any weapon drawn at him or anything like that, us going for no weapon. His weapon was already drawn when he got out the car. He shot again, and once my friend felt that shot, he turned around and he put his hands in the earth, and he started to get down, but the officer still approached with his weapon drawn, and he fired several more shots, and my friend died. He didn't say anything to him. He just stood over and he was shooting. By then, I was so afraid for my life, I just, I got up and I ran. I ran as fast as I could back home to my daughter and my woman because I didn't know what was going on. 
We wasn't committing any crime, bringing no harm to nobody, but my friend was murdered in cold blood. So three times he was shot. He uh, you can tell. said they never addressed us. And two, you've heard our pleas and our cries for everything to go the way it should be. And then third of all, we heard this, and it was just like a, like I had been shot. Like, you shooting me now. Just no respect, no sympathy, nothing. And so my emotions were raging, and I had to go up there just to let them know, you just really don't care, do you? And why don't you care? This could be your child. This could be anybody's child. keep protesting till it's over with. And if it ain't, and if we don't get justice, then that's just what's gonna happen, man. We're gonna be out here every day. So something happens. Come on now, let, let, let's keep walking. I saw Trayvon Martin. I saw George Zimmerman get away with it. Now, now, now it's another case. Now, if this police get away with it, now, I'm telling y'all, man, this ain't Florida. This is St. Louis, Missouri. But what we are seeing now is this was a, a primary example of the racial divide uh, in Ferguson, in St. Louis, and uh, the nation. Uh, because this story has always been about Mike Brown and bigger than Mike Brown. Every other day in America, every other day, some black or brown child is subject to the arbitrary violence of the state with little to no recourse. That every other day in America, a mother is writing a funeral program that would perhaps be the elegy of the democracy. So, James, um, I guess before we move on, before we talk too well about the piece that he was kind of to contribute, maybe you could give listeners a little bit more context. The murder, the execution of Mike Brown, the protests that have occurred since, I believe, May in Ferguson, Missouri, essentially since that murder took place and consequences elsewhere. Sure. So, yeah, it's, it's probably best to start with a, a background and a summary of the background on the shooting. And, and so maybe for those listening who haven't been paying close attention to every detail, so, so some months ago, August 9th, uh, Mike Brown was shot and killed by Darren Wilson in the street. He was unarmed. He was running away when he was shot. Witnesses in the grand jury testimony seem to agree on that. Um, you heard in the opening of the show some of the testimony by Dorian Johnson, who was with Mike Brown on the day he was killed. And Darren Wilson shot his gun 12 times and struck Mike Brown seven times. Witness accounts seem consistent that Brown was running away or surrendering when he was shot. Mike Brown's body was left to lie in the street for four hours. And the encounter and the killing took in total less than 90 seconds. And since then, protesters have taken to the streets of Ferguson demanding the indictment of Darren Wilson and justice for Mike Brown. Uh, a grand jury investigation, which is uh, an artefact of the US legal system, has decided that no indictment will be brought. And it's worth stating how unusual that is, save, in fact, in, ca in cases of police violence. Uh, and one fact that has enraged protesters and enraged simply right-minded people worldwide uh, is the behaviour of the prosecutor, Robert McCulloch, uh, who's very close to the police, from police family, and has a history of siding with them. And the questioning of Darren Wilson during the investigation was, in fact, bafflingly gentle, and I've, I've never seen anything like it. Uh, after the no-bill 
announcement on Tuesday of this week. Uh, huge protests erupted again in Ferguson, but across the US as well. Uh, and we heard the grief and rage of Mike Brown's mother uh, earlier in, in that tape. Um, many of these protests also drew a general link between the death of Mike Brown and other police shootings since, especially the recent killing of Akai Gurley in New York, uh, an unarmed man who was uh, in the stairwell of a housing project with his girlfriend, uh, and especially the killing of Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old child playing with a legal BB gun. And cop car drew up and shot him within two seconds of arriving. Uh, solidarity rallies, vigils and demonstrations have taken place worldwide, including one here in London outside the US Embassy, organised by London Black Revolutionaries, uh, which was attended by many hundreds of people and later took to the streets of central London. Uh, many of these demonstrations have drawn, of course, the connection between what is happening in Ferguson and the US and struggles against racism and police violence in their own cities and countries. Uh, so, I mean, yes, yeah, so I suppose it's, it's, it's best to sort of start with the significance of Ferguson, maybe where you can say something about what, what led you to, to, to write on it and, and the connections you see uh, emerging between, between there and here. Yep. Well, I mean, what, what, I've, and what I've written about in terms of Ferguson thus far um, in, in both the pieces, the one on Navarra, uh, and the one on my blog is where, where can li- listeners find that? Uh, so so the, uh, the one on my blog is on uh, isthisday.com yeah. um, and it'll be the first thing up there but but what but I think one of the one of the main points I've tried to draw out in both of those pieces is to highlight uh, this this slogan that has been very much at the forefront uh, in Ferguson and then also taken up in, in the wider US and and we saw it also in London during the vigil um, on Wednesday that is that Black Lives Matter um, of course in in one sense it's inc- ridiculous that we have to even make the point that Black Lives Matter but on the other hand when we when we see with the killing of michael brown with the killing of Tam- uh, tamir rice with the killing of mark duggan with the killing of sean rigg and we can bring to mind so so many other names far far too many other names uh, a what what can only be thought of as a well worldwide atrocity in, that it, a worldwide atrocity of the killing of black people a complete disregard for those black lives. So trying to put this concept to the forefront whilst recognising an atrocity is taking place and also being cognisant of the fact that these these killings happen every single day. We we have lists that go into the thousands just in the UK. If you take the global context into interview, these are tens of thousands of killings that are happening on a semi-regular basis. Um, but Ferguson has presented itself as this opportunity to say, to say, Black Lives Matter, in a way that th- threatens the w- what has been the status quo thus far of the the police and the state being being able to basically kill with impunity and resist every effort at accountability that's, that the families and the campaigns meet them with. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess to explore from that, it was really, really noticeable on Monday the the proliferation of that slogan and the the sort of the the the, the other one that I've seen sort of circulating in Ferguson is is also um, one that draws very clearly like the, that systemic link, which is indict the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so these things are these things are circulating. And I mean, it's it's uh, you know, I mean, in, in one sense, of course, and as, as you put it, it's uh, sort of you know. 
unsurprising, right? I mean, you know, this is uh, this kind of thing is not, you know, new. Um, I mean, one of the things I, I suppose I, I've been trying to think about is 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 exactly how it happens that this is, you know, this time it, it's so big a reaction and it's generalised in this way. And 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 I mean, you were speaking. Uh, at, at, at that rally outside the U.S. Embassy on Monday, about that that question of, of both the specificity and the universality uh, of, of of this thing, because I mean, we heard in in the VT at the top of the show and and uh, uh, the 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 that recording that that sort of really raw recording of Mike Brown's mum, Leslie McSpadden, uh, saying, you know, oh, it, it could be any of your child. The reality is, of course, it's you know that's not quite true, is it? No. Mm-hmm. Well, I, no, that isn't. It, it isn't quite true, and uh, it it does come down to uh, this the horrible position where the well, if we take if we look at the vigil on um, on Wednesday, there was an, there was an absolute mix of people from all sorts of background, whether we whether we're talking about race, gender, sexuality, um, even political kind of um, thought. Uh, but what what people were completely mindful of and sensitive towards is that there are there are certain people who uh, find themselves at the end of police repression in in this most brutal form of the possibility of your life being taken away uh and 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 i think that i think what part of what I was trying to say that is that, of course, we have all been anti-racists for uh, decades now. The uh, the the um, even those sections of the left who previously thought that um, uh, uh, bringing in questions of race was somewhat an aberration an, an aberration from what we should actually be struggling for have. have <coughs> And have recognised that racism exists, um, and go out and march against fascists and and all these other things. But what's become completely obvious is that 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 black lives are not central to uh, to this politics. And 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 I think that the the only way that we're going to have and and only way we're going to bring these killings to an end. And the only way that we're going to make any kind of political progress is to to make this central to all of our and to all of our politics. This isn't something that black people have to and black people are the only ones that can combat. Absolutely not. I think uh, white silence and white um, complicity in this is, and also has to be ended. Um, and we also have to be, be frank about the, this. The, these are these killings have histories going back hundreds of years, and it's not hi, uh, hyperbole to point out the um, the 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 similarities and the the continuation by other means of lynching a friend. Uh, I was talking with a friend. Uh, um, just after, just before at our, at, um, at our conference, after the Reverend Seiko from Ferg- Ferguson um, skyped into the um, Defender Rights Protest Conference uh, about the need to recognise a a lynch culture and 
the the continuation of by, by the means of lynching. Mm, I mean, that's the thing, right? White like we, we white people are the ones that did lynch mobs, right? They know exactly what they're doing. I just want to draw some quick parallels between obviously what's happening in the US right now with Mike Brown, Tamar Rice, Ferguson, and obviously here in the UK. The sheer quantity, the numbers involved in terms of incarceration rates, in terms of state executions, mm. far lower in this country. You could say that's because of the historical cleavage in the United States was race before even capital. You know, this was a country built literally on the on the on the back of indentured black labour mm-hmm. before even the capitalist mode of production prevailed. That said, the UK since the fifties, sixties is in a number of ways catching up. In a number of ways, not just in terms of uh, what the you know, the country looks like it's kind of composition, but in terms of how the state deals with the surplus populations, which is heavily racialized, that surplus population is heavily racialized. Um, so I just want to draw some parallels here. We talk about lynch mobs. I mean, if you're talking about the media response in the immediate aftermath of the execution of Mark Duggan, that's what it should be rightfully called. It was a state execution. Um, I've got some quotes here. Um, initially, after that murder... It was referred to, here we go, in the Evening Standard, nobody can be too surprised in such circumstances when criminals of this kind come to a sticky end. Elsewhere, you had the Telegraph say, gangsterism, not racism, was the root of Mark Duggan's shooting. So almost straight away, just as they tried to do in Ferguson with the release of this video, which showed Mike Brown stealing a box of cigarillos from a convenience store. Um, you had the state immediately try and create a context where they said, well, even if this was an inappropriate response by the officer, even if this is totally unjustifiable, totally unjustifiable, this is the kind of person who would have had it coming, right? Mm -hmm. That's how they frame it. And they do that by essentially, I mean, it it boils down to what the person looks like, the colour of their skin. So, you know, there were people saying, you know, you've got journalists in the Telegraph, for instance, I think it was Tim Stanley even, said this guy had a rap sheet as long as his arm, Mark Duggan. Do you know what he did? He had three... Uh, nobody knows this. Yeah, nobody yeah. talks about this. This guy had three offences on his record, Duggan. He'd never done time in prison, right? Not that that matters, but you know, we're talking about Mark Duggan, right? And this is... All these things, his name has been absolutely sort of dragged through the mud by the media. This guy, possession of marijuana, minor assault, possession of stolen goods, handling stolen goods, right? Never done time. All very minor, minor, minor things. In no way could you infer from that this guy was a career criminal, quote-unquote. But exactly with with Mike Brown, there was this media lynch mob of the privileged, of the white, of the affluent, which had to smear this young man's name before the public could respond, maybe appropriately. That's always a possibility, right? People might actually see sense and see the uh, disgusting, immoral, unjustifiable, reprehensible nature of these murders. So how would you you respond to that? How how the media frame and try and shift blame to the victims? To me, that seems like the contemporary lynch mob almost. I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you, because that's clearly a, a historic trope within kind of uh, white supremacy. How does that now manifest itself? Because there aren't sort of, I mean, you get it sometimes sort of in the riots, but how does it manifest itself now, that, that lynch mob mentality, do you think? Yeah, well, um, I, th- I think it's in- incredibly important what you pointed out in, in terms of the, um, the killing of Mark Duggan, and then the the what was the re-killing of Mark Duggan by the 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 press, uh, and then again the re-killing of Mark Duggan in the um, the ju- in the jury's verdict. Um, as you as you pointed out, there were I think three th- these three charges, these three actual instances of what we call what they would call criminal behaviour. Um, 
But this isn't what was reported by the press. What was, what was reported by the press was um, what first in the first instance the, the this kind of vile battle of who and a bit of who gets to choose what the image of the dead is, what who gets to see, and what which picture of the um, of the the killed um, makes its way out into the mainstream press. Uh, and in the case of Mark Duggan, we saw this, what came out was this absolutely vile um, doctoring, photoshopping, editing of um, <clears throat> a picture of him at his daughter's gravesite, gravesite holding a, a memorial plaque t- for her. But that being cut out of the image... And, and that context being cut out of the image in order to point out that he and um, um in order to perpetuate a i don't know he 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 had a, a an understandably not cheery face on and this was then weaponized against him um but that what were the what was then later happened was in the reporting of the uh, reportage coming out of the inquest was um these these journalists listening to the bizarre kind of tales that the police were spinning uh, mm. uh and kind of reporting stuff like i think and i think one it was something was one of the things that came out was mark duggan was something like the 40th most wanted person in europe on some sort of list and like this is obviously a joke this is the young <laughs> this is a young black man living in tottenham oh, um in 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 north london and the and and the press are quite willing to um to go with the police when these press releases and these kind of half thought out uh um lies because because these police officers go to court and they lie right but they're not mm-hmm. very competent at it um people people can see through it um yeah, you see, the 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 press are quite happy to take up the initial um, uh, police press release uh, that imme- immediately goes into action when they do do these killings uh, and trying to shape the narrative. And the press are quite happy to run alongside them uh, all and every step of the way. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it, it struck me when you were saying the, this thing about, you know, uh, how the media always come out with, uh, you know, oh, it's it's not about racism. It wasn't about race. It was about, you know, criminality or whatever. And there'll be something, uh, if it's not criminality, it'll be mental health very often mm-hmm. or it'll be something like that. And, you know, the, the thing that always astonishes me is like they, they actually do this disavowal before anyone's even had the chance to say to them that it was racist. They, and this to me indicates that there's always something that's present in, in the back of a you know, cop PR officer or, you know, some you know, reactionary journalist at the Telegraph or whatever. And, kind of, you know, OK, God, we've got to find something that is clearly a racist killing. We've got to find something else to say about it. Yeah. Uh, and so this this happens. And, you know, I mean, it's also, that, you know, and it's hard to, you know, you know there are people, um, you know, who do really, you know, good counterwork to this in the press. And not very many, but they exist. Um, but, you, you know, if, if you look at this and you try to do it, and, and even talking specifically now about Ferguson in the context of police killings of, of black people within, within the United States, uh, which, of course, forms the background to, to, to this. And, and there's, you know, uh, you know, excellent work done by, by, for instance, people at the Institute of Race, Race Relations to do with the, the way in which you know uh, uh, m- collective memory is retained about killings in a way that that, that eludes official figures. Um, 
you, you know, it's actually very difficult to, to find statistical analyses of race and ethnicity of people killed by police in the United States. The Justice Department don't require police departments to retain those figures and, in fact, don't require them to record and centralise the, the number of shootings for each force. So, so it's very difficult to, to actually... And there are now independent organisations trying to map trying to, to that up, and it's really, you know, I mean, it's a, just a, a record of slaughter, really. Um, but, you know, I mean, on top of this, there is, of course, always the police narrative, right, which is that, oh, he's reaching for something or, uh, you know, he's acting uh, suspiciously. And I say he, and it's, and it's, it's often uh, and usually young men who are shot, but, but you know, it's, it's not by no means exclusively. No, we remember uh, Joy Gardner, yeah, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, there's that that connection there, and then of course, you know, the the backdrop in in the states and and particularly the South is the strong connection between uh, racist groups and the police. Uh, there there are there is certainly speculation, uh, some of it that seems credible. Um, that if if not this officer Darren Wilson directly, then certainly people within the police department in in this area connected intimately uh, and and uh, overlap with the KKK. The KKK threatened to come to Ferguson and, and, uh, uh, and execute people. It is conceivable that they have already done so. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you see this also in... You see the legacy of, of, of the thinking of the KKK in Darren Wilson's testimony when, he's, when he talks of Mike Brown, a human being that he killed. He said, it, yeah. it looks like a demon. And and this to me is the is the legacy of <laughs> uh, of organisations like the KKK and the and and the culture that treats black bodies in this way and and this is one of those reasons that that that, that slogan, um, for all its strangeness, I think mm-hmm. is is an extremely powerful one. Yeah, um, and but uh, but one thing I, I, I what I would like to point out is um, so the the the. The police and the media and co- organized racists are quite uh, are very quick to ensure that the in these situations that the dead are from the very off um, not innocent are uh, mm. somewhat complicit in their own killing um, but we I think we also have to be cognizant of of this that we didn't that it doesn't matter innocence isn't what matters in these situations we shouldn't mm. either mm. be striving after um whatever the, whatever innocence might be in order to kind of beatify um these people who have been killed we what we sh- what we should be what we should be calling out and what we should be um condemning is the is the is that the and is that these killings have happened in the first place and that they shouldn't happen regardless of the the status of innocence um, of the person who's been killed um, and I know, and, and I think that it's incredibly easy to kind of fall into in fall into this and given that listen none of us know, none of us knew Michael Brown none of us know knew Mark Duggan we 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 certainly know some, most of us would certainly know someone who might end up in the same situation as them uh but 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 what happens when the but uh, what happens in the public imaginary when these people are killed is that they have an image of a uh of a black figure and this is why it's quite often uh young black men right that they have this figure and this image of uh the young black man who's constantly um, constantly denied innocence and therefore also denied life. 
I just wanted to say because you mentioned the KKK. I mean, so many times you hear it on you know in, within the mainstream media. You know, look, the far right in Europe's re-emerging in much the same way as did in the 1930s. Economic crisis leads to uh, the re-emergence of similar formations to National Socialism, etc. We talk about the Golden Dawn, the Front National, UKIP, etc., etc. Not not identical uh, formations, but the the causal mechanisms arguably are the same. And so what's the equivalent, actually, of the Nazi party in the United States is, of course, the KKK. People don't realise this. The Ku Klux Klan was one of the biggest civil society organisations in 1930s America. You know, people always think of civil society organisations, social movements as positive things. You know, they're not always positive things. You know, the Ku Klux Klan, at its peak, allegedly, around 1% of the United States population in the 1930s was said to be actively disposed towards the Ku Klux Klan. What that means is they were either channeling resources or, or participating or actively helping participants um which is a huge number one percent it's a massive number um that is that's a really that's the definition for uh theodore scott is a scholar of this stuff of a you know a, a mainstream social movement organization mainstream social movement actor so then the question has to be since 08 we've been talking about the re-emergence of the far right in europe what about the re-emergence of something like the kkk in the united states because there's a very set of a similar set of economic dynamics going on you know, America went through the crisis in much the same way as the European Union has done. Various differences in terms of unemployment and how that's been mediated. Yeah, you know, so in the US, you have much higher underemployment. In the EU, you have much higher unemployment. There's been much larger wage repression in the US than there has been in the EU. Uh, an amazing statistic. Barack Obama, questionably, the worst president in contemporary history for African-Americans. Asset ownership of African Americans since 2008 has declined by 20%. Right? By 20%. So you're talking about the average household in the United States has seen asset ownership decline by about 10% to 8 For blacks, for African Americans, it's double, right? Mm. Uh, so there's a huge racial striation to how the economic crisis has unfolded since 2008. So how do you, for you, okay, so this is new. The response to Trayvon Martin, the response to Mike Brown is very new. How much is that a consequence of this new economic context, new communications technologies, um, and seemingly new protest dynamics? Because this doesn't look or sound like the civil rights movement. And it doesn't seem, you know, in terms of its composition, in terms of its grievances, in terms of how it's mobilizing, doesn't, it doesn't seem like the NAACP or King or... Go on. No, well, I mean... In a sense, I think it does. It does look uh, something like a uh, something like the civil rights movement. Uh, I, I'd say, what what I'd say what it was again. Um, so, Rever- Reverend Seiko again uh, had a brilliant turn of phrase. Um, was that this is a civil rights movement, but this is this isn't the civil rights movement of your your uh, mother or father. Uh, this is a continuation. This is the the same. These are the same battles. This is the remnants of what wasn't won in the civil rights movement. The civil, if the civil rights movement was uh, a battle for legal legal and not not just legal kind of recognitions and equality, but but kind of materially it was. Uh, but what we then have is kind of recognition that perhaps uh, perhaps the law doesn't have a space for certain lives. Perhaps even winning uh, certain rights, uh, certain human rights. Kind of, and what we've seen is that 
uh, guess what? Human rights, despite their kind of um, kind of heritage as maybe being a uh, a a codification of more an innate natural um, and natural rights that people and imbued with but um by virtue of being simply by being human uh let's entertain for a moment that that, that this this ex, like this kind of hobbesian pre pre um pre social uh life exists it turns out that once you move over into the the democratic state or some form of um law or um some form of um state law uh that life like certain lives can no longer survive this pre uh, and and carry on with this this previous um this previous recognition yeah i mean there are, there are sort of two things i i think that are worth talking about in this context one is the sort of um geographic context of Ferguson, right? So, uh, like, it, it, it won't be clear to, to listeners in, in the UK, but, um, you know, Ferguson is it only only started to look like it does a, a few decades ago. Um, it, it, you know, it's a, it's a suburb-ish mm. of St. Louis. Um, it's quite, quite a way out of the city, actually. Um, and it was sort of, um, you know, it, it had its sort of time in the sunshine in the 50s and the 60s and you know it, the, the population kept doubling and growing about 30,000 people lived there in, in 1970 or so so you have deindustrialization and uh, and the population drops uh, it drops in line with populations across St. Louis um, but in, in you know in Ferguson in particular it's not just a, 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 a level drop it's it's a process of white flight so wealthier people leave the region um, as the economy gets restructured uh, and you know, uh, poorer people, largely black people, seeking better schools, better housing than there, there was in, in in the core of St. Louis at the time, um, uh, find themselves moving out to Ferguson. And so, and you, you then have a developing cycle of gentrification in which um, you know it gets called suburbanization, and and you, you, you know it is a national trend and international trend as well. The the the, the uh, rewhitening of urban centres and the movement of the poor and and uh, and poverty is of course racialized uh, to 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 a sort of bonlier style ring of, of suburbs. It's not always um, the case, it, it, and it, it, you know there are differences between you know, each iteration of this. But it does mean that that you know we have here a case of of a, of a kind of uh, protest movement that doesn't necessarily look like the the historic iterations of, of, of rioting and, and, and direct action protest uh, in American history. So the Watts riot, um, the, the, the riots after the assassination of Martin Luther King, um, you know, the, they are different in kind to, to these, these kinds of riots. I mean, remember, you have um, the only substantial public housing in, in St. Louis, the Pro-Igo complex, uh, was demolished in 1972. Uh, and you know, this was supposed to be a leap forward in uh, urban renewal. Uh, the, the the Reagan administration was was all, you know all behind it. Um, you know, this attempt to move people into sort of you know private private housing, um, you, you know, and and so you know so this causes a change in the style of protest. You also have in Ferguson, in particular, a city, uh, you know, a municipality, a, a small municipality in which the entire leadership is white. Um, despite the, the the racial mix of the area being yeah. very much the other way, so you you don't have um, you know a, a class striation in quite the same way. In fact, like you you have you, you saw the um, 
the the Ferguson police attempting to bust in the 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 you know St. Yeah. Louis police captain, um, the only black captain they could find yeah. in the area. Um, so so there's that, and that 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 I think shapes some of the stuff that that's happening here. Um, I, there's yeah, I, and 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 just also if we um, think obviously Ferguson is um, a an, an, a community which is quite poor. Ferguson is a community which is quite young. Or I think there's mm-hmm. an, almost eight thousand students out of a twenty-something thousand population. Uh, and guess what? There are no jobs. Uh, so, so what we also see is this kind of um, if we're going to, if we're going to make some some links. We had the in in here in the UK we had the student movement of 2010 2011 uh, and 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 many of the many of those people who are on the 20. 2010 demonstrations and as well as the EMA demonstrations even perhaps even more and, and more so those EMA demonstrations uh, would have been rioting in August 2011 they that the, there is definitely an overlap um, here but again in in Ferguson you you have all you have these vast numbers of students and you have have been seeing this same kind of um, civil disobedience um, and um, civil civil disobedience and structures of organising that you kind of see from student organising um, and and these kind of institutions with um, a, a greater kind of memory of organising, uh, in, also including like large parts of the. Um, the the church who have obviously have a history in the US of um, c- radical organizing well parts of the church of of, of course <laughs> um, but yeah I think that the kind of I think the student context should also be borne in mind mm. the fact that um, the fact that Michael Brown was a was himself a student. Um, at, and I think I think for a, a, it, it's not hard to imagine that it, once Michael Brown is shot dead in this way and treated with such utter disrespect by the police, that you, ha- you have a lot of young young black students um, thinking, okay, well, it seems that my future is either that I'm shot dead by a police officer or even if I survive, what what are my prospects? I mean, I just got a tweet from uh, on the, on the Navarra FM hashtag saying, you know, it's not a question of you know. Um, why is this happening now? As I asked you just a few moments ago, but why didn't it happen early? And why didn't this happen earlier? Why isn't the response to what we've seen with Trevor Martin and now Mike Brown? Why didn't this happen earlier? And I think that's probably a convergence of a number of things: declining pay and declining asset ownership. There's the economic context for African Americans. Don't forget, African Americans suffered the most from the subprime crisis. Absolutely massive in terms of home repossessions. It was incredibly racialized how that all unfolded. And that's one element. I think the second element actually is a really big one, which is this: the Ascent of Barack Obama, his winning the United States presidency in 2008, represents the culmination of the kind of institutional politics within the civil rights movement, right? So you've still got Sharpton going to these young people, these kids in Ferguson, going, register to vote. And they go, look, we've got a black president, and this guy's been shot. Mike Brown's been shot. Trevor Martin's been shot. Tamar has been shot. We've got a black president. So clearly, I think that, I mean, maybe I'd like to hear your response to this. That, you know, Barack Obama is kind of the apotheosis of the institutional approach and its limits. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, what do you think about that? Because it seems to me it's almost unique that you now have this guy at the White House. And actually, when that converges with increasingly violent ways of managing 
surplus populations, which in the United States are overwhelmingly people of colour since the crisis. Um, and, yeah, economic decline, which, again, you know, hits these people the most. That seems to me a really, I wouldn't say toxic, it's not a negative thing, it's a fantastic thing, a really heady mix, actually, in terms of black politics and black organising. Uh-huh. What do you think about that? Um, well, I think... I think um Firstly, we I think firstly we've seen a kind of um, failure uh, in um, black leadership and um, black um, community community leaders, and this is obviously a um, a. I'm I'm incredibly suspicious of those people who can be kind of labelled as community leaders whenever whenever these kind of things uh, happen and can go and speak in the press and are supposed to be the the uh, kind of those who will those who will calm and often play the role of those who will calm the unruly and angry youth, but and firstly we've seen that kind of failure. But secondly, I think we have to be. I th- if people haven't read it, the um, I can't remember the exact title. But if you so, um, if you haven't read A. Sivanadan's um, uh, account in a, the essay, um, it's not called the Different Hunger Essay, but that's the one. That's what I think of it as because that's the that's his point. It's, his point is this. Um, there is a different a different hunger could have been, was um, was recognizable between the earlier civil rights and coming out of the post colonial context and we're talking about here in the UK now but I think it's obviously somewhat different in the US but you can make the links a, you could recognize a certain movement of those that first generation looking for the recognitions to post-colonialism once they came over in Windrush and um, and all these other things and then say 30, 20 years later uh, when you have the Notting Hill riots and you have um, the uh, and and y- you have you have these kind of later riots of the seventies and the eighties and the nineties and the not yeah and the noughties I'm not quite I don't quite remember um, and again now in twenty eleven um, but but all of these are somewhat characterized by a different hunger of a, a later generation that kind of uh, recognize and recognize that well my parents were promised were, were promised these rights uh, I. I, I, I haven't benefited. I haven't really benefited from them. It seems that I'm still facing the economic oppression that comes with my race. I'm still facing the police repression that comes with my race, uh, and uh, and and no, I, I I don't want rights. I want to kind of fight the state on it, and when it has declared war on me. Um, I also think that there's. I, I keep referring to Reverend Seiko, but if you uh, if you hear him speak, you you'll understand why. And he um, and and the defend the right to protest campaign, and then NUS Black Students and um, London Black Revolutionaries and other organisations are uh, trying to bring Reverend Seiko over to the UK to do a speaking tour in the new year. So if you get a chance to. Um, go along and support that. You re- you really really should. And uh, 
especially if you missed him speaking at the Defender Right Protest Conference a couple of weekends ago. Um, but he spoke of um, God entering into history. Now, he's he's a man of the cloth. Uh, so, of course, he's going to speak a, a bit about God. But I think th- th- I think this is an important, fr- um, important phrase to think about in that you have, yes, you might well have Barack Obama, you might well have um, other... And, um, other black leaders um, and who have been kind of subsumed into the what remains a white supremacist uh, system, uh, but then you have what is what is God entering into history? Well, if 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 um, if if history if history was there before God entered into it, what what this um, what God entering into history is that this social history, the people who are able to bring about historical change, coming to this realization that they that they they have this almost they have the and they have the power and the possibility and the potential to bring about godlike changes um in our society to bring a, to bring about what looks like a whole new world because a world without a world where black life is black life matters and black life is central is a, is the ability to create an entirely new world in this godlike fashion um out of the out of what um out of the the atrocity and the repression that we face at the moment. Yeah, I mean, um, it's interesting this question about sort of institutional and non-institutional uh, politics and and action. Because I mean, I, I think in in one sense it's it's not necessarily a useful distinction, right? I mean, perhaps the the more useful way to talk about it is counter-institutional. Because uh, so I was reading uh, just the other day the the open letter from. Um, some protesters at Ferguson, uh, and one of the things to say, of course, is, is it's always very it's very hard to when when one is at one remove from from a situation like Ferguson to to know exactly how much of a movement is encapsulated in in you know these, these iterations, these texts, these you know, whatever. But it, it seems to me pretty clear that that, that this is you know, certainly a substantial part of the movement. And, you know, just quoting from from that open letter. You know, it, it says, uh, we will continue to struggle because without struggle there is no progress. We will continue to disrupt life because without disruption we fear for our lives. We will continue because Asata, Asata Shakur, who is a uh, fugitive from, from the United States, uh, Black Panther, uh, reminds us day that it is our duty to fight for freedom. It is our duty to win. We must love and support one another. We have nothing to lose but our chains. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the letter ends with... Uh, this, th- these lines, a grief even in its most righteous state cannot last forever. No community can sustain itself this way. So we'll continue to stand for progress and continue to stand alongside anyone who will make a personal investment in ending our grief and who will take a personal stake in achieving justice. We march on with purpose. The work continues. This is not a moment, but a movement. The movement lives. This comes from a number of protesters in Ferguson. It's circulated by um, DeRay McKesson, who's a prominent uh, 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 spokesperson of, of of the protesters there. Uh, the other thing that, that emerges, and maybe one of the things that I, I would like to list, is a series of demands. Now, this is this this is one of the things that, and again, you know, it's it, it's it's important to say that there you know there is a plurality of of 
political views here, but um, you know, it, it's obviously very clear that, that there's you know there's a substantial part of the movement behind these demands. I just want to run through them because it's you know it's an I- interesting I think exercise in using a social movement to to, to push as far as possible things that are, are actually would destroy the system if mm-hmm. if they were if they were to be realised. So demand one: political accountability for the death of Michael Brown Jr. Uh, demand two: a special prosecutor for all deadly force cases. Demand three, police held accountable for use of deadly force. Demand four, end over policing and the criminalization of poverty. Uh, Demand five, a representative police force and intentional officer training. Demand six, end end funding for discriminatory police forces. Demand seven, truth and reconciliation commission on structural and systemic inequalities in Missouri. Demand eight, the right to protest. Uh, demand nine pass the national end racial profiling legislation. Now, now these list of demands are, is of course uh, you know subject to to dissent within the movement as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I think this is you know uh, uh, one thing that is actually marking Ferguson out it is thinking about how how long and how 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 a movement like this can endure for more than the flash of of uh, you know the flashpoint of of rage and pain. Yeah, I think. Um I think that's absolutely and absolutely right. I think we do have to ask ourselves ask ourselves what it is that we're um, what it is that we're asking for, what it is that we're demanding in these movements. Uh, I think one one of the key questions for us really is what 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 is our concept of justice? What is our concept of justice, especially in these deaths in custody and justice campaigns um, that we are either forced to undertake or we um, support because we recognise the the important political need to do so. Um, but so, for example, what, what what do you call for? Right, if you when your family when your family member has been shot dead by the police, what do you call for? the the what should happen in the in the eyes of the state is that criminal charges are brought this is a, uh, this is a killing this is quite possibly in the I'm talking about in the eyes of the state this is a killing that has taken place this is quite possibly a murder how do we decide whether a killing is a murder we go to court and a jury decides and the evidence is presented in open court and uh, the law takes its course well, of course, we see over and over again the law failing the these families. Uh, and so you speak to people like Marcia Rigg, for example, and you ask them, what is, how um, can we achieve justice? And they say, after five years of struggling, five, six years of struggling um, against, uh, to get justice for her brother, Sean Rigg, she says, well, I, d- I can't see j- I can't see justice within this system. I want justice, but I can't see an ability to achieve that justice within this system. So I think we need to ask that, and and I think to to those people who quickly dismiss calls for justice as bourgeois, I want to say that there is a very there is a reason why these families are all asking for justice. It's. Uh, I would argue a kind of incredibly naive racism that um, quickly seems to, and quickly wants to run into 
saying that ju- justice is simply a bourgeois, um, there's only bourgeois justice. No, we need a world uh, of uh, our own justice. Uh, we need we need to create our own uh, our own process of process of justice that seek to destroy the process of justice that um, fail us over and over again. And I and and, and just on that quickly, I want to mention uh, this this amazing these amazing scenes in a film um, called Let It Burn uh, about the move a move. Um, uh, the Move community, who uh, were led by a man called John Africa, uh, were very, uh, very much supported by uh, Mumia Abu Jamal. Uh, were a kind of community of alternative, um, uh, al- um, al- alternative living, alternative black and uh, with heritage, black heritage living in um, Philadelphia, I believe, um, in Osage, Philadelphia. Uh, and in 1985, after protracted battles with the police to shut down their commune, they were, their, the house in the, on this, uh, a, like, inc- just incredibly normal um, Philadelphia um, residential street, the house was bombed by the Philadelphia police force uh, burning down, but what you see in the film called Let, and we just let it burn, which came out last year uh, or earlier this year, is this kind of truth and, and the the, um, the stock, um, the archive footage mixed with this tr- footage from this truth and reconciliation style public inquest that took the form of. Um, problematic form but interesting form of community leaders um, from black clergy to um, uh, um, to people from all a huge panel of uh, those untaking the inquest uh, asking the police um, but this moment where in this one police officer during that kind of breaks down and explains that this child walked out of this house uh, and he simply had to run over and pick this child up uh, and call for the other officers not to fire uh, and this what can happen when you when people have to heal as a community together uh, after great injustices like this mm. we've got just over five minutes left you're listening to Navarra FM here on Residence 104.4 FM London uh, James Butler and I are joined today by Well Kasim he's kindly written a piece which ties in with today's discussion that's at wired.navarramedia.com um this idea of politics is miraculous. It's Hannah Arendt as well. You know, she talks about how real politics has this quality of the otherworldly. It seems like a miracle, mm-hmm. in so much as it is genuine human agency. Right? And yeah. genuine human agency does seem godlike, yeah. actually. Um, uh, and that call for black lives mattering as a revolutionary call, and if it was acted upon, would require a whole new world, a whole new set of social relations, would have the quality of a miracle. And that's not just with regards to the US prison system, two million people locked up in the United States today, overwhelmingly racialized uh, feature of American society. It would also tie in, obviously, to the policing of uh, black communities and individuals, but also migration, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the US and Europe, at the moment, we're seeing huge migration flows. Precisely the same kinds of subjectivities and, and, and frames are used for these persons. They are not they are not allowed, they're not entitled to the same universal quote-unquote human rights, which actually just turn out to be white rights. Mm-hmm. Um, I also wanted to say about leaders quickly, um, Fred Hampton, if people aren't aware of this guy, was murdered at 21, late 60s. This is what happens when the possibility of a miracle is on the horizon. Uh, the state, the, the United States, 
kind of state, dealt with it in the only way it knew, which was a murder. And if you Google this guy, Wikipedia, Fred Hampton, an inspiring speaker of the Black Civil Rights Movement, 21 years old, I think, when he died, murdered in his bed. You know, this is what happens. And miracles do happen. That's why the state responds in the way it does. Nothing is inevitable. We make history, if not under conditions of our own making. Okay, so conclusions. James and Well, I guess, a couple of minutes each. Yeah, uh, I mean, basically, the, the only thing to say, really, is solidarity with the movement in Ferguson. And the other thing to say, of course, is the experience that... that that the movement in Ferguson is having is an experience of closed justice, which is replicated here, where suspect communities, uh, uh, just a term used in, in policing, incidentally, wow. um, uh, encounter uh, you know the sense that justice is closed to them. The evidence is withheld because of a sensitive police operation. Um, you know the the certain subjectivities become subject to a special kind of law. You know they they get cordoned off from the normal use of law. Um, so so you know the 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 resistance to this is you know it is you know <laughs> it is a solidarity movement really um you know what this this line that um uh, liz fikete in uh, she's writing in uh, race and class journal of the mm-hmm. the institute of race relations calls the very lungs of progressive politics the movement of solidarity so this is you know i mean it's 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 clear and obvious where where to go and where to do that i mean these organizations taking on the police in london uh such as london complaining against police and state violence for instance um always always in need of help uh, always in need of, of people to, to, to go and undertake police monitoring. Other organisations newing... Uh, <coughs> <coughs> Sorry. monitoring project. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's basically what I would say there, is that, 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 that what we need to do is, is clear before us. It's just a matter of doing it. Any concluding thoughts? Yeah, I'd, I, um, what, what I'd like to say is that we have to recognise uh, Ferguson as a, as a, a movement that has been uh, that has been reignited uh, that responds to the questions the question that we are, uh, is constantly on some of our minds of who who ne- who's going to be next to be added to this list of dead with the answer of no one. Uh, this is a uh, this is a movement that says that is saying never again this is a movement that is saying not another lynching this is a movement that is saying black lives matter we are black here we are we are alive uh this is a movement that is saying that not another pig will get away with it um i i think i mean there's not much more to say other than obviously also uh my utter i think all of our utter condolences to the family of uh, michael brown and uh, I'm just going to finish with the, another Asata Shakur quote. There's, um, carry it on, pass it down to the children, pass it down, carry it on to freedom. Excellent. Well, thank you ever so much. Um, this is Navarra Media, Navarra FM. See you same time, same place next week. Bye.